Hi, my name is Rabbi Pini Dunno. Welcome back to my series, Exploring Jewish History, broadcast from Beverly Hills, California. This is part two of the first episode in the series. The title of this episode is Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions, and it is a multi-part episode looking at the lives of some of the characters who travel down the side roads of Jewish history. These characters were obscure even in their lifetimes, although some of them had a brief and unflattering moment in the limelight. All of the people featured in Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions have a story that will astound you, enthrall you, fascinate you and probably also horrify you. As they say, you literally couldn't make this stuff up. And I don't make it up. Every detail is meticulously researched. My only challenge is, how do I include all the information that I have and still keep the story confined to a manageable amount of time? It's not easy. Exploring Jewish History is part of the Fishman Jewish History lecture series. And this particular episode is sponsored by George and Susie Fishman in memory of George's sister, Clary Fishman, Rivka Baschaim Yehuda, Aleha Sholem, Zichrena Livrocha, whose yard site is on the 8th of Tammuz. May Hanashama have an aliyah, may we all be zoicha to see Trias HaMesim. The astonishing story we are going to focus on today concerns a low-ranking 20th century Hasidic Rebbe who was referred to by his family and those who knew him as the Golden Rebbe because he seems to have pioneered the idea that a Rebbe should wear elaborate gold embroidered bekishes on Shabbos and he did that long before other Hasidic Rebbes started doing it. The Golden Rebbe's name was Rabbi Yitzchak Leifer and his jaw-dropping story makes the one I told about Rabbi Harris Rosenberg in part one of Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions pale into insignificance by comparison. I'm going to start with some background. Who exactly are the Leifer family? I think answering that question is a good starting point. The Leifer family rose to prominence as leaders in the Hasidic world during the 19th century. The first Rebbe was Rabbi Sochaber Leifer. He was known as Rebercha. Here's a picture of his tzion, that's the grave, in Nadvarna. Rabbi Sukhaber was the first one to use the Leifer surname, which is derived from the fact that he was a Leifer, a runner. He was always rushing to do any mitzvahs that he could. I'll get back to the Leifer family in a minute, but first let me tell you about Nadvarna, where Rabbi Sukhaber became the Rebbe in the year 1813. The town of Nadvarna, which is today called Nadvirna and is in Ukraine, was originally in the Kingdom of Poland. You can see on the map, it's very close to Kolomaya, and you can see Krakow in the far northwest of the map, 280 miles away. Chernowitz, which is next to Sadiger, is southeast, about 80 miles away. Kloisenburg is 200 miles to the south. Satmar, is 150 miles to the southwest, and Debrecen is 210 miles away, also southwest. A little bit more history about Nadvorna. In 1772, it was absorbed into Galicia, which at the time was a province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But after the First World War, Nadvorna became Polish again. In 1939, the Soviets absorbed Nadvorna into Ukraine. Then, 
The Nazis invaded Ukraine in 1941 and took it away from the Soviet Union. In 1945, after the Second World War was over, Nadvarna was returned to the Soviet Union and then, after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, it became a town in independent Ukraine. Quite a journey for a small town, I think you'll agree, but not at all uncommon for towns in that region. Jews were very prominent as part of the Nadvorna population. In 1880, out of the 6,500 total population of Nadvorna, 4,200 residents were Jewish. That's two-thirds. This was the high point, because after that, the Jewish population declined. And by the Second World War, there was less than half that number, about 2,000 Jews altogether. The Nadvorna Hasidic dynasty, which began with Rabbi Sukhaber, didn't emerge out of nowhere. It came from very distinguished origins. Rabbi Sukhaber's father was Rabbi Yitzchak Kalisha, a grandson of the first Rabbi Meir Premishlana, Rabbi Meir HaGodl, as he's known. Here's a picture of Rabbi Meir HaGodl's Matseva in the Beis Olam in Premishlan. By the way, Rabbi Sukhaber Leifer, being descended from Rabbi Meir HaGodl of Premishlan, of course means that my own family is distantly related to the Nadvarna dynasty, as my wife Sabine is a Premishlana Enikel. Rabbi Sukhaber died prematurely. In 1848, he got caught up in the cholera epidemic that gripped the area in and around Nadvarna. Legend has it that once he died, all the cholera deaths in Nadvarna stopped, and everyone believed that his passing was penance, and it was the reason everyone else escaped the fatal clutches of the epidemic. He was 58 years old. Rabbi Sukhaber's son, Rabbi Modchala, was by far the most prominent of all his children, revered and respected not just by Hasidim, but also by Rebbes such as Rabbi Sol of Rizin and Rabbi Chaim of Sanz. Initially, Rabbi Modchala lived in Nadvarna, but later he moved to Chust, and then in 1870 he moved to Bushtina, about 100 miles southwest of Nadvarna. He authored a number of Svarim, the most famous of which is called Ma'amar Modcha, which includes a section called Sisrei Torah, which is the collected divrei Torah of his father, Rabbi Sukhaber. Rabbi Modchala had eight children altogether, six sons and two daughters. One of his daughters died in childhood, but his other daughter married a Rebbe, Rabbi Avram Yosef Igra of Shilin, although they later divorced as they hadn't had children. All of Rabbi Modchala's six sons became Rebbes in their own right. Rabbi Modchala, who was involved in a succession fight with his brother in Nadvarna when Rabbi Sukhaber died, apparently said that any of his children and descendants who want to call themselves Nadvarna Rebbe and create their own Hasidus could do so, and they didn't need to wait until the previous generation of Rebbes had died off. One of Rabbi Modchala's sons was Rabbi Yosef Leifer, his youngest son in fact. He was born in 1858 and he died in 1927. After trying his luck as a Nadvarna Rebbe in various places, including Debrecen, he eventually became the Nadvarna Rebbe of Niridhaz, Hungary. In Hungarian, the name is Niragihaza. There were a few hundred Orthodox families in Niridhaz, and Rabbi Yosef became the local Hasidische Rebbe. Rabbi Yosef had three sons and one daughter. His daughter, Gittel, married Rabbi Sral Isaacson, the Romana Rebbe's son, who added Leifer to his last name but they had no children. Their nephew, Rabbi Chil Yehuda Isaacson, was married to the Berach Moshe of Satma's sister, 
and was one of the main founders of the Haredi community in Los Angeles. As I said, Rabbi Yosef had three sons, two of them, Rabbi Yaakov Leifer and Rabbi Moshe Menachem, who changed his last name to Laufer, became Nadvona Rebbes in Debritzin, where their father had lived for a time and where he had some chassidim. Rabbi Yosef's third son was Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak was born in 1893 and he seems to have struggled to find a role for himself as a Nadvona Rebbe in Europe. The Rebbe market appears to have been quite saturated and in particular by this time it seems there was no shortage of Nadvona Rebbes in Hungary and Romania. Rabbi Yitzchak also seems to have found it quite hard to find a suitable wife which meant a wife from a good Rebbesha family. In the end he married his first cousin Gitala who was the daughter of Rabbi Suchabel Leifer, his uncle, one of Rabbi Yosef's older brothers. Truthfully, his marriage to Gitla is a bit of a mystery. Firstly, she was exactly five years older than him. She was born January 19th, 1888, and he was born January 19th, 1893. Secondly, and this is really strange, Gitla had already been married to a man called Shlomo Bergman, with whom she had four children. Shlomo Bergman was the son of Bavrom Tzvi Bergman, the Rav of Yassinia and Mamarosh, but Shlomo Bergman wasn't a rabbi or rebbe. Sadly, he died young in 1916 and he left Gitler with the children and no means of supporting them. I expect when Gitler struggled to find a second husband, Rabbi Yitzchak came into the frame as an obvious candidate. He was an eligible bachelor, Actually, he was getting quite old to be an unmarried Chesidish Rebbe's son. He was also a relative. He was charming and charismatic, and everyone hoped and believed that if he got married and settled down, he had a good future ahead of him. Rabbi Yitzchok was 28 when they got married, and Gitler was 33. She was no doubt glad to have a husband, but I can't imagine what he was thinking or why he felt compelled to marry a woman five years older than him, with four children, even if she was his cousin. But he did, and now he had to provide for them, and they quickly began having children of their own together as well. All of a sudden, an idea came up. Let's move to America. Gitler had an older brother called Rameer Leifer, who came to America in 1922 and set himself up as the Nadvona Rebbe of Cleveland. He very quickly became successful as a frontman for bootleggers. I know, it sounds crazy, but as crazy as it sounds, during the period of prohibition, there was a legal loophole that meant rabbis could legitimately produce wine for religious purposes. And there were quite a few rabbis and rebbes who used this loophole to make money. And Rameer Leifer of Cleveland, the Cleveland Rebbe, Gitler's brother, was one of them. Unfortunately for him, after the 21st Amendment was passed in 1933, which meant prohibition was repealed and alcohol was legal again, the Cleveland Rebbe's lucrative sacramental wine bootlegging business dried up and he moved to Brooklyn. In 1937, he moved to Los Angeles for health reasons. He died in LA in 1941 and he's buried there. I've been to his caver several times. It cannot be a coincidence that Rabbi Yitzchak Leifer came to America in the same year as his brother-in-law, Rabbi Meir. It was probably planned that way. 
And they were far from the only ones with this plan. During the early to mid-1920s, many rabbis and rebbes who were struggling in Europe decided to emigrate to the United States. In fact, another one of Gitler's brothers, this one a half-brother, Rabbi Yosef Leifer, came to America in 1924 and set himself up as the Nadvona Rebbe of Pittsburgh. And to this day, the Pittsburgher dynasty is, and Chassidus continues to thrive, although today the Chassidus is based in Israel, not in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But let's get back to Rabbi Tzokleifer. He arrived at Ellis Island on March 27, 1922. Here is a picture of his certificate of arrival. And as you can see on the certificate, his official name for legal purposes was Isaac Leifer. The New York Jewish community welcomed Reb Yitzchak with open arms. He was fated as the grandson of Reb Modchel of Nadvarna. And just to give you one example, here you can see an advert promoting a Shabbos weekend in Harlem featuring Reb Yitzchak. Featuring Reb Yitzchak. You can see that they call him Reb Yitzchak. And the ad says that there's going to be a tish on Friday night, another one on Shabbos afternoon for Shalashudas, and another one wants a Shabbos from Lava Malka. And this scene was repeated in many other places. Eventually, Rabbi Yitzchak set himself up in a building of his own on the corner of Bedford Avenue and South 9th Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with the help of a mortgage of $14,000. The mortgage was signed by him and by Gitler and by her oldest son, by her first husband, Dov Bear. The acquisition of the building meant Rabbi Yitzchak had made it in America. He had his own shul at the center of a very Jewish neighborhood. In June 1929, Gitler's oldest daughter, Rivka Rezel, also known as Rosa, got married to a chassidah Yitzchak Isaac Langner. And the wedding was widely reported in all the newspapers. Wed in ancient costumes, read the headline in one newspaper. An unusual wedding was another newspaper's headline. And according to the reports, thousands of Brooklyn Jews gathered around Rabbi Yitzchak's shul at 135 South 9th Street. According to one newspaper report, the bride was carefully veiled following the old Orthodox Jewish custom, and the groom wore the rabbinical dress of the old Hebraic scholars. Rivka Reisel's groom, the Chosen, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Langner, that's a photo for him in, in later life, was the son of the Stretina Rebbe of Toronto, Rabbi Moshe Langner. Sadly, his marriage to Rivka Rezel didn't last very long and the couple later got divorced. They both remarried. Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac married a girl from Toronto called Dina Brucher Zilberstein, but they never had children. He was actually a real ascetic. I mean, he was the real thing. He barely ate. He spent most of the day, we're talking every day, davening, and he was thought of as being very spiritual and unworldly. Which is interesting because Rivka Rezel's second husband could not have been more different than her first. Her second husband's name was Meir Rosenbaum. He was actually her second cousin, the son of Rabbi Sommer, the Kretschnef Nadvona Rebbe of Israel. Kretschnef is a branch of the Nadvona dynasty, although for some reason the founding Rebbe, Rabbi Meir, changed his last name from Leifer to Rosenbaum. I know, it's confusing. Bottom line, Rabbi Summer Rosenbaum, Meir's father, was a first cousin to both Rabbi Yitzhak Leifer and his wife Gitela, because Rabbi Summer's father, Rabbi Meir, was the son of Rabbi Modchel of Navdona, which meant he was the brother of both Rabbi Yitzhak's father and Gitela's father. Sometimes, when it comes to Chesidisha mis Mishpachology, 
it's hard to keep up. Everyone is related to everyone else. Anyway, the marriage took place in Chernovitz in Europe in 1936, and according to the newspaper report, 10,000 Hasidim attended the wedding. Now, as you saw in the photo, Mayor Rosenbaum was much more modern in appearance than the rest of his family, including his in-laws. Here's a photo of him with his father and brothers at his nephew's wedding. One brother was the Zuchke Rebbe. The other brother was the Stroznitz Rebbe. His nephew, the Chosn in the photo, became the Clevelander Rebbe. And I think you'll agree that they all very much look the part, very Hasidish Rebbe-like. But you can see that Meir is sitting on the end there, on the right, dressed in a light suit and hat, with a goatee beard and no payas. He looks totally different to his father, brothers and nephew. And of course, he looked very different when we compare him to Rivka Ezel's first husband, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Langner. The reason Rabbi Meir Rosenbaum was so different to his family is because he studied at Chevron Yeshiva, a Litvish Yeshiva, the branch of Slabodka that moved to Eretz Yisrael in 1924. And he got smicha there. He also attended university in Vienna and New York. After he married Rivka Ezel, they moved to Cuba, where he was a fundraiser for Menachem Begin's Irgun, and he became the rabbi of the Orthodox community, even calling himself the chief rabbi of Cuba. In the late 1950s, when the political situation in Cuba deteriorated, the family left Cuba and they settled in Mexico. Rivka Ezel died in 1984, and Rabmeir Rosenbaum soon remarried to his first wife's first cousin, Leah Hinder, daughter of the Pittsburgh Rebbe, who had previously been married to Reb Shlomo Tversky of Denver. He died in 1983. Here is a photo of Reb Meir Rosenbaum with wife number two, Leah Hinder. He moved to Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York, and opened a shtibel there. Fascinatingly, he became known as the Cubana Rebbe. And as you can see, his appearance drifted solidly back into his Hasidische roots, with a full beard, a strammel, a bekisha. Here's another photo during those later years at a wedding with his brother, the Zuchke Rebbe, on the left and his nephew, the Nadvona Rebbe of Nebrak, on the right. The Cubana Rebbe lived to the ripe old age of 94 and died in 2004. Now, I apologize for all the digression, but these family details are so fascinating, don't you think so? Although the truth is, I haven't even begun to touch on the story I want to tell you about Rabbi Yitzchak, a.k.a. Isaac Leifer. He wasn't only appreciated by the common folk in America, as I mentioned earlier, but he also seems to have been very highly considered among the Chushavar of America. In 1925, an exclusive delegation of rabbis went to visit President Calvin Coolidge in the White House. Reb Yitzchak was among them. Not just among them, he was front and center, literally. Look at this photo. You can see him standing between Rabbi Avram Aronyudelovitz and Rabbi Velvela Magolius, two of the most distinguished and senior Litvisher Abonim in America at the time. In 1927, Rabbi and Gitler applied to the State Department to become naturalized U.S. citizens. Here is a copy of Rabbi naturalization application. In the space for occupation, he put as his job Grand Rabbi, which would later come back to haunt him. He also put this job description on his business card, although in the Hebrew on the business card, under his name, it says Nadvon Rebbe. 
In those years, Grand Rabbi had come to mean in English, Chassidish Rebbe. In other words, if you were a Hasidic Rebbe, then you were the Grand Rabbi of your sect, which meant not quite the same as a Congregational Rabbi. In a way, a Grand Rabbi was more elevated because their followers were not just in their Congregational area, but they were also spread far and wide. Let's get back to the story. Just as everything seemed to be going well, clouds appeared on the horizon. Rabbi Yitzchok was unable to meet his financial obligations and the mortgage company which he used to buy his shul began to foreclose on his property. In 1934-1935, bankruptcy notices were inserted into all the newspapers in Brooklyn. The notices announced that the Prudential Savings Company was the plaintiff and they were foreclosing against Congregation Yeshivas Rabbi Yitzchok Leifer. It, was, it would seem, looking back, that this bankruptcy situation was the beginning of a process that led Rabbi Yitzhak to disaster. Rabbi Yitzhak was obviously unable to repay the loan from his own income and from his revenue as a Rebbe. So he must have turned to some less than reputable characters to pay his way out of the financial problems. And suddenly, Rabbi Yitzhak Leifer seemed to be in the money. The shul was no longer at the center of his attention. In 1936, he went to Palestine with Gitala and the children, and they resided at first in Haifa. Rabbi Yitzchok bought himself a car. Just to be clear, no one in Eretz Yisrael had cars in those days. Every day, Rabbi Yitzchok drove his car from Haifa to the Yablana Rebbe's mikveh in Kfar Hasidim because, apparently, according to him, none of the mikvois in Haifa were kosher enough for him and only the Yablana Rebbe's mikveh was properly kosher. In Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Yitzchok met Meir Rosenbaum and the match was made between Meir and Gitala's daughter, Rivka Rezel. Most probably, Gitala's son, Dovber, was the Shatchan, as he was also studying in Hebron Yeshiva at the time. Here's a photo of Dovber with all his Yeshiva friends. And as you can see, unlike his new brother-in-law, Dovber fully retained his chassidish look. Here is another photo of Dovber, in those days, although Dovber's journey was quite different to that of his brother-in-law, Meir, but I'll get to that story later. During 1936 and 1937, Rabbi traveled backwards and forwards between Europe and Palestine, visiting family in Hungary, but also spending time in Paris. He brought Gitala and the children back to the United States and then came back to Eretz Yisrael, where he stayed for several months at the celebrated kosher hotel, the Amdurski Hotel, in its brand new location on Ben Yehuda Street in central Jerusalem. According to reports that emerged later during this period, Rabbi Yitzchak purchased real estate in Palestine valued at between 50,000 and 300,000 US dollars, an absolute fortune and he lived large. He spent money like it was going out of style, and he distributed charity to individuals and causes. His fortunes seemed to have changed completely. Rabbi Yitzchak Leifer, the Nadvona Rebbe of Brooklyn, was no longer the obscure youngest brother of some minor offshoot of a low-ranking chassidus. He was an up-and-coming star, destined to be one of the most influential Rebbes around. And then, it all came crashing down, literally tumbling down. The whole house of cards collapsed. It was one of the most dramatic, 
jaw-dropping Jewish news stories of 1938, and it dominated the media for months. On July 25th, 1938, every newspaper in France carried the story. Le Grand Rabbin de Brooklyn trafiquait l'héroïne, which translates, the chief rabbi of Brooklyn trafficked heroin. Apparently, following a tip-off, the French police had arrested Rebitzrock, together with a young, clean-shaven man called Hermann Gottdiener, who was a resident of Paris, and between them, when they were arrested, they had on them 22 packets of powdered heroin, apparently worth 600,000 French francs, an eye-watering amount of money, I think you'll agree. 600,000 francs was worth $114,000 then, which is $2,365,000 today. These packets of heroin had been ready to insert into the bindings of Sidurim, Chumoshim and Gomorrahs, and then sent either to Eretz Yisrael or to the United States. And apparently the smuggling operation had been going on for some time. It was later reported that catching the drug criminals in the act had been planned for months in a rare case of close cooperation between the French and American police. In March 1939, the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations, released a Summary of Illicit Transactions report on behalf of the Advisory Committee on the Traffic in Opium and Other Dangerous Drugs, with an entire section devoted to the Lifer case. The level of detail was precise and shocking. This is what it said. On July 18, 1938, French police announced that they had arrested in Paris on that date one Isaac Leifer of Brooklyn, New York, while he was attempting to ship prayer books containing 15 kilograms of heroin concealed in the bindings of the books addressed to Gershoff, 570 Barbie Street, Brooklyn, New York, and to S. Cohen, 1929 Douglas Street, Brooklyn, New York. Further, that Lifer had recently shipped 14 kilograms of heroin concealed in the same manner to Jerusalem, Palestine. It is understood that the British police at Jerusalem, acting on this information, seized 41 parcels, each parcel containing two prayer books and each book containing 100 grams of heroin. The police further ascertained that 22 parcels of prayer books had been shipped to New York on July 20th, 1938. 11 of these packages were addressed to S. Cohen at the address given above, and 11 to M. Gershoff for D. Bernstein at the Barbie Street address. The shipment of 22 parcels of books arrived at New York on August 5th, 1938. It was first carefully examined for fingerprints without result. On August 6, 1938, further examination of the books, 44 in number, disclosed that each contained two glazed paper packages of heroin, each package containing approximately 57 grams of that drug. A few days after the arrest was reported in the press, an internal memorandum between the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Customs Service Agency articulated how the Lifer case had been meticulously investigated by John W. Bulkley of the U.S. Customs Service Agency, and what he revealed in the memo was absolutely astonishing. According to Bulkley, 
1937, when Rabbi Yitzhak had returned from Palestine with Gitel and the children, he had rented a number of rooms across Brooklyn, all of them from Jewish families. He told the landlords that he was a rabbi who would be importing Jewish books from foreign countries and that he probably wouldn't be around to take delivery, so he needed them to be delivered to the room he was renting. Within weeks after renting the rooms, books started to arrive. The landlords were instructed to either keep the books while Rabbi Yitzchak was away and hold them for him until either he came back for them or his wife would come and collect them. None of the rooms were ever used for anything except as a receiving address for books. Sometimes there were so many books that needed to be collected in a single location that Gitala needed to use a taxi to take them all away. On one occasion, Rabbi Yitzchak's 10-year-old son Yosef came for the books, but he was not strong enough to take the whole consignment away on his own. Gitala had been brought in for questioning, and she admitted that she had collected the books, but she said that she had no idea that they contained drugs. This is more than likely the truth. Everyone in this horrible story was a patsy. And in a minute, I will tell you about the Moichas Sforim in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, whose life was turned upside down as a result of his involvement. Now, you remember Rabbi Yitzchok's choice of words in his job definition, Grand Rabbi, Grand Rabbin. It turned out to be devastating because in French, Grand Rabbin, Grand Rabbi, means chief rabbi, and suddenly it appeared as if Rabbi Yitzhak was falsely claiming to be the chief rabbi of Brooklyn on his business card. It seems like a minor detail, but it resulted in the case getting much more attention. Arresting a chief rabbi on drugs charges made international news. A telegram to the US State Department revealed that the prominent Jews of France had felt the need to dissociate themselves from Rabbi Yitzchak, and they complained to the US Embassy that he was being referred to by the Americans as a chief rabbi, grand rabbi, because he said he was a grand rabbi and that meant chief rabbi in France. Confusion reigned. Pictures of Rabbi Yitzchak were in every newspaper. He was shown with his long beard and Hasidic hat and velvet-collared long coat. There was just no escaping the story. On July 28th, Rabbi Yitzchok was brought up in front of a magistrate. He vehemently denied when he was questioned that he had any knowledge that the white powder in the packets he was shipping to New York was heroin. He was also grilled about the fact that he called himself Grand Rabbi. Are you an ordained rabbi? The magistrate asked him. Rabbi Yitzchok answered, that he was entitled to be called Grand Rabbi because, as he put it, I'm the son and grandson of a rabbi. Rabbi Yitzhak also told the magistrates that he had been set up by a man called Jacob in New York, and it was this Jacob fellow who had given him instructions on shipping the books to New York, telling him exactly what he should do. Rabbi Yitzhak denied that he knew the book bindings contained heroin. Meanwhile, it turned out that the bookbinder was a simple Polish Jew who lived in Paris called Avram Kantorowicz, and he was the one who had expertly hollowed out the bindings and inserted the packets with the drugs inside. The story he told the magistrate was that he'd been informed by Rabitzchok that the powder he was putting into the bindings was ground-up sand from Eretzistral, and that inserting it into the binding would make the books more holy. Kantorowicz said he never questioned what he was doing, 
and he just did what the Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchok, had asked him to do. Within days, the story hit the American press. The headline in one newspaper read, Drugs Discovered in Prayer Book. In another newspaper, the headline read, Drugs Concealed in Prayer Book. The article under that headline contained an image of the safer with the binding peeled back, showing the hollowed out card with the drug packet inside. It also showed a profile mugshot photo of Rebitzchak with his yarmulke off. The nightmare only got worse. Rebitzchak wasn't bailed and remained incarcerated in jail. At the beginning of November 1938, Gitila was arrested at her home in 91 Rodney Street in New York. The headline was devastating. Mother of six seized in dope plot. And as you can see, the article included her photo. Another newspaper reported that Gitela had denied the charges and pleaded not guilty at Brooklyn Federal Court to an indictment charging her with conspiring to smuggle large quantities of pure opium into the United States, concealed in the covers of Jewish Bibles. The judge, Robert Alexander Inch, granted Gitela bail of $10,000, which is over $200,000 in today's money. And the trial was set for November 21st, although, as it turned out, the proceedings dragged on for years and she wasn't tried until 1941. As Gitela's, at Gitela's arraignment, the U.S. attorney for New York's Eastern District, Michael F. Walsh, told the court that Rebjitzchak was going to be extradited back to New York for trial together with Gitela, and that extradition proceedings had already begun. But clearly, these details had not been worked out with the French authorities, and the French had no intention of sending Robitsok to the United States to stand trial. There was also another mystery to be cleared up, especially as it became evident that the drug smuggling operation had not just been going on for half a year, as was originally thought, but for at least four years, ever since the bankruptcy proceedings were launched in 1934. And the mystery was this. Who was buying the drugs from the lifers to sell to drug addicts? Was it the shadowy Jacob, who Rabiatok had mentioned as the person who had given him instructions on how to smuggle the books with the drugs? Gitala claimed to have no idea who the end customer was. And with extradition going nowhere, the court decided to send James Skilepi, the prosecutor, to question Rabiatok in Paris, where he was being held in custody. This decision was reported in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on January 29, 1939, in an article that once again featured a photo of Gitela. But the idea of finding out who the drug kingpin was in New York went nowhere, and Rabiatok gave nothing away to Skilepi. Years later, Rabiatok told a family member that the only way he was able to escape unscathed from the horror of his situation after being arrested was to take the fall for the mastermind. And who that mastermind was, was a secret Rabitzhok took with him to his grave. The trial in Paris was in June 1939. As far as the French media was concerned, the pseudo-rabbi was guilty as charged even before any evidence had been heard and any witnesses had been cross-examined. The press photos of Rebutok sitting bareheaded in the dock, you can see them here for the first time in high resolution, sent shockwaves around the Jewish world. 
the Aguda Sarabonim of Poland issued a statement saying that there was no rabbi called Yitzhak Leifer from Brooklyn and they pronounced Rabbi Yitzhak to be an imposter. The trial proceeded quickly and Rabbi Yitzhak was sentenced to two years in jail plus time served. Almost immediately, the extradition proceedings were reignited and the plan was for Rabbi Yitzhak to serve prison time in the US and stand trial there. But it wasn't to be. In September 1939, the Second World War broke out and understandably, the fate of a drug-smuggling Rebbe was no longer very high priority. And so, Rabbi Yitzchok served out his time in a French jail. Exactly a year after his trial, on June 14, 1940, the Nazis occupied Paris. Jews in France were rounded up and herded into camps and then sent to the east to be murdered. But not Rabbi Yitzchok. He was an American citizen and the United States was not at war with Germany and they wouldn't be at war with Germany until the end of 1941. And even though the prisons were now under the jurisdiction of the Nazis and Rabbi Yitzchok was very visibly Jewish, he was totally safe. Remarkably, Rabbi Yitzchok was extradited back to the United States in March 1941. On March 28, 1941, the New York Daily News announced that Isaac Leifer had arrived back in New York and had been seized at the dock by FBI agents. In the mugshot photo, he looked terrible. The trial was set for May 1941. He would be tried together with Gitler. But by now, the story was old news. U.S. Attorney Michael Walsh had moved on and was now the New York's Secretary of State. Nobody's heart was in it, and the trial went nowhere. Rabbi Yitzchak and Gitler were acquitted, and together with their kids, they moved to the Bronx, where Rabbi Yitzchak opened a little shtibel. In 1943, Rabbi Yitzchak joined the Rabbi's March in Washington, D.C. to protest Roosevelt's lack of action to help Jews in Europe from the Holocaust. Rabbi Yitzchok became a regular at community events and family simchas, and his notoriety was forgotten or overlooked. The Bergman Leifert children all got married. Leah married Reborch Rokach, who was known as the Scholier Rebbe. Chaya married Rebenzian Frankel, the founder and Rover Frankel Stiebel in Flatbush. All the other children got married too, except for Yosef, who never married, and he died young at the age of 26 in 1954. As for Rabbi Yitzchok, besides for being involved in a dramatic car crash in 1953 that made it into the pages of the Daily News, even though no one was hurt, he stayed out of the news for the rest of his life. Gitele Leifer died in 1962. Curiously, her gravestone mentions her father, but not her husband, who was still alive when the gravestone was put there. Rabbi Yitzchok himself died in 1968. On his gravestone, it mentions that he was Kibel Yisurim Be'ahava, which means, roughly translated, that he accepted his pain and his suffering stoically, and he never lost his faith in Hashem. The full story of how he got sucked into smuggling drugs, how someone so bright and from such a distinguished background could have made such a terrible misstep never came to light in his, in his lifetime and has never been revealed since. And whatever the answer is to that question, Rabbi Yitzchak 
has many fine upstanding descendants and his memory continues to be cherished by his family. I have two loose ends that I want to focus on before I finish this episode. The first loose end is this. Shortly before the Second World War, Yitzchok's stepson, Dov Ber Bergman, who we saw earlier as a chassidish aboch in Hebron Yeshiva, married Chana Malka, the daughter of Rav Naftali Tzvi Weiss of Bilka, who was the son of the Spinker Rebbe and was killed in Auschwitz in 1944. This photo of Rav Naftali Tzvi was discovered in the so-called Auschwitz album, which you can research online. It's a fascinating collection of photographs of Jews in Auschwitz discovered shortly after Auschwitz was liberated. Dovbeer Bergman is better remembered as Rabbi Bernard Bergman, particularly because of his brush with the law over nursing home Medicaid fraud, which made the headlines in the mid-1970s. Bernard Bergman was a brilliant businessman. And he was also a community leader and philanthropist, very active in Mizrahi. The point I want to raise is this. One of the first nursing homes in the Bergman nursing home business, a business that was valued in 1975 at $24 million, was called the Mosholu Parkway Nursing Home in the Bronx, and it opened in 1957. What is interesting is that the application for the City Building Department approval of plans for the construction of the 176-bed home was filed on July 17, 1956, on behalf of Mosholu Parkway Realty Company Incorporated by none other than Rabbi Isaac Leifer, president of the company, and his daughter Yetta Leifer as the company secretary, both living at 1658 Townsend Avenue in the Bronx. And even though the New York Times picked up on this nugget of information, they never made the connection between Bergman's stepfathering, stepfather and the pre-war notorious drug smuggler. In 1976, Bernard Bergman was sentenced to four months in prison. But in the end, his plea bargain deal was rejected, and he actually spent eight months in jail and also paid a $1.4 million fine. He died in 1984. The second loose end I want to address is also very interesting. I discovered online the original file compiled by the British police in Palestine beginning in 1938. This is it. I've printed it all off. I'm holding a copy in my hands, hundreds of pages of information, and it is information that no one has researched before. The file contains the exact details of the logistics of the drug smuggling. And here it is. There was a young Breslover Chosid in Yerushalayim called Rabyomtov Zlotnik. He came from a Litvisha family, but he became Breslov. Zlotnik was a wine and liquor dealer in Shari Chesed in Yerushalayim. One day, he was approached by a distinguished-looking man, Rabbi Yitzhak Leifer, who asked Zlotnik to supply him with unbound Gomorrahs and send them to Paris, where they could be bound, and then they would be, they would be bound in a beautiful European binding, and then the Gomorrahs would be sent back to Palestine, and then Zlotnik should send them to the addresses in New York which Rabbi Yitzhak gave him. For this work, Zlotnik would be handsomely rewarded. Imagine Zlotnik's surprise when he heard that a man called Leifer had been arrested in Paris for smuggling drugs in the bindings of books. The arrest was widely reported in the newspapers in Palestine at the time of the arrest. See here, for example, the report in Haaretz. Zlotnik was mortified. 
He immediately went to the British-led Palestine police force and confessed everything he knew. He informed the police that he had recently prepared a bunch of parcels, each of them with two Gomorrahs that had been bound by a bookbinder in Paris. The police opened them and sure enough, hey presto, the drugs were inside the bindings. Zlotnik was promptly arrested and put into custody without bail. Zlotnik was suffering from degenerative tuberculosis of the lungs and the anxiety made things worse. He was made to suffer a number of difficult interrogations. Meanwhile, his family ran around for help. Many people wrote letters to say that Zlotnik was innocent, including the Rav of the Haredi community in Yerushalayim, Rav Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky. All the letters are in this file. It took three months, three months, but eventually Zlotnik was freed without charge. He died from his illness in 1943 at the age of just 34. The drug smuggling episode had broken him and then news of the Holocaust totally destroyed his will to live. Here is a picture of his grave. Yomtov Zlotnik had two very distinguished sons-in-law. One was Rabbi Sral Aaron Kopschitz, who was the Rosh Hashiva, a Rosh Hashiva in Torah Oyer in Matersdorf. He died in 2020. Another one was an extremely interesting man. He was one of the first Haredim to come up with a form of Haredi Zionism. That's the only way I can describe it. And his name was Rav Yitzchak Shlomo Zilberman. Rav Zilberman created a community of followers of the Gerar in the old city of Jerusalem, and his influence is still felt to this day. As a matter of interest, Rav Zilberman despised Chassidus and Chassidim. And now that I know what happened to his father-in-law and why, perhaps it wasn't just theology that drove him in that direction. I want to end with one more piece from the Palestine police file. It would appear that it wasn't just the Americans who wanted to put Rebutok life on trial. The British police in Palestine wanted to do it as well. The problem was they couldn't get their hands on him and after the Second World War began, they didn't even know where he was. For example, on August 3rd, 1942, in this letter, they wrote that no further information is to hand regarding this absconded offender. He was last heard of in France in 1939 when the French police were investigating his activities. Then in 1943, as the war raged around them, they somehow discovered that Rebutokleife was in New York. In this letter, dated March 1st, 1943, it says, Subject is currently residing at 9 Rodney Street in Brooklyn, New York, which was actually the wrong address, but whatever. I mean, obviously nothing happened anyway, and not even once the war was over. By 1947, the wind was out of the sails, even for the British police who were on his tail. In a 1947 letter dated January 17th, the direction was clear. Eight years have elapsed since the offence was committed, and I suggest that this case now be closed. Finally, in a letter dated November 19th, 1947, the decision was final. Since eight and a half years have now elapsed since the date of the offence, Mr. Langer has directed that this case be closed. Well, I think that is an appropriate point for me to close part two of this Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions. We will let the Golden Rebbe rest in peace as we contemplate his crazy story. Thank you so much for watching or listening, and I hope to see you for the next episode. Until then, goodbye and warmest wishes.